0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew sixteen thirteen to 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to this gathering of God's local church. It's wonderful to see all of you this afternoon. You know, over the past three weeks, we've been exploring the Apostles' Creed together, and, and the Apostles' Creed is this ancient summary of the Christian faith. It tells us the essentials of what the Christian message and the Bible itself is all about. The creed is not the inspired word of God like the Bible is, nor was it written by the original apostles, but it it does distill the essential teachings of the apostles that we find in the Bible. And, And here's why we're studying this document Together. First of all, the Apostles' Creed gives us clarity. It, it offers us clarity on who God is, what He's done, and what He's promised to do. And by extension, as we saw last week, when we study who He is and what He's done and what He's promised to do, that gives us clarity on who we are as people made in His image to live in the world that He created and that He will one day recreate. The creed not only gives us clarity, it also helps us develop balance. Here's what I mean. It, it, it lays out the core elements of the Christian faith. It, it lays out those tenets of Christianity that we must cling to as Christians with a firm grip. And, and in doing that, those those tenets that the, the church must cling to as we as we learn them and we hold on to them, it also helps us differentiate between those tenets and second and third tier issues that are important, but they're not essential in the same way that the elements of the creed are. That is, it helps us differentiate between those issues as Christians we must hold on to with a firm grip and other second and third tier issues that Christians can peacefully disagree over. Those issues that perhaps we hold with a A slightly looser grip. You see, the the Creed helps us to develop a more balanced and, and prioritized understanding of what Christianity is all about so that we don't focus on the minors and ignore the majors. Lastly, the Apostle Creed can help root us in truth So so that the ethics that we live by and and, and the way that we carry out our lives, so that the things that we believe and care about will hopefully be an outgrowth of what the Bible tells us about who God is and about ourselves and about the world. So here's why we're studying the Apostles' Creed. Again, it's to gain some clarity, some balance, and some rootedness in truth as we study this creed together. And, And... New Hope, I I say this with with fear and trembling and and grief, but but there are many people who at one point would have identified themselves as Christians who have now, over time, grown unclear about the gospel or unbalanced or uprooted from truth. And, And in some cases, it's led some of those people to slowly but surely Depart from the faith altogether and deny it. No doubt the the reasons for that vary from case to case, but in one way or another, a departure took place. And and now to to guard ourselves against that in our own lives, in our families, in our church, we need to strive toward clarity and balance and and a deep, strong rootedness in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude tells us. So if you happen to feel like you might be on that trajectory, like your faith is, is, is in the gospel is weakening, or, or your trust in the Bible is, is shaky right now and getting shakier, this is an opportunity to go back to the core of what the Bible has said and what God invites you to stake your life on. If right now, perhaps you would say you don't believe the message of Christianity at all, or you don't know if you believe it or not, this is an opportunity for you too to consider the core message of Christianity and to ask, am I willing to to give ear to it? Am I willing to openly, uh, humbly receive what God tells me even if I don't believe that it's necessarily God, to to open myself up to whatever the Bible is teaching me and consider whether it's true with an openness to what God might show you. As we look at the scriptures today, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And, And let's ask God to help us do just that, to humbly see what he wants to show us. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before your word in in a variety of ways perhaps represented in this room, some of us with a deeply rooted faith and confidence in it, others perhaps wondering whether it can be trusted, and still others suspicious, skeptical. Father, we ask that you would humble our hearts and that you would open up our hearts to receive truth We ask that you would show us marvelous things in your word and that you would give us the eyes to see the beauty. Our ears uh, prepare us to to hear the truth that you have for us. We ask, Father, that we would have the humility to be able to lay aside our preconceptions, our prejudices, and submit ourselves to the truth that you offer us here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostles' Creed actually breaks up naturally into at least three different sections, and, and that's intentional because the, the, it, the layout reflects the fact that God himself is triune. He's, he's three in one, which is confusing, isn't it? After all, people like us are not three in one. We are one in one. That is, every human is one person. One human equals one person, but that's not so with God. He is one God in three persons, and that's incomprehensible, frankly. That doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. It just means that it exceeds our ability to fully grasp it. And that shouldn't surprise us, really. Because if God were to fit into all of our expected human categories, If he were to completely make sense to us and fit into our boxes, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? The very reality that he's God means that he is beyond us, he's bigger than us. We exist in a reality that he created. The first and the shortest part of the Apostles' Creed tells us about God the Father, maker of heaven and earth what we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. Part two tells us about God, the Son, and it begins this way. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Got three titles for Jesus in that one line. He is Christ, he is Son, he is Lord. And we're going to unpack each of those titles. And to help us do that, we're going to go to Matthew 16, 13 to 17 this passage that Julia just read for us Matthew 16:13 to 17 I encourage you open up a Bible if you have one and and look at those words let's look at the conversation really that's happening here and as we do that closely what we're going to try to do is understand the significance of this conversation by using three questions of our own here's the three questions we're going to ask of this who is Jesus how do you know and why does it matter who is he how do you know and why does it matter? So first of all, who is he? Verse 13, read along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man, by the way, is a term that Jesus often used to talk about himself. Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke tell the same story, but they record it this way. Who do people say that I am? In any case, Jesus is asking, what's the word in the community, on the street, about me? And he's not conducting a focus group here, by the way. He's not trying to do research to find out how people are responding to his brand and his message. No, he knows what the opinions of him already are. He he, he knows that the opinions vary, but he's going somewhere with this line of questioning. But look at verse 14, how the disciples answer. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now notice, these names, they're all prophets. And their message, in some ways, did overlap with Jesus' message. And that shouldn't surprise us, because they were sent by God, just as Jesus was sent by God. So, So Jesus reminded people of these prophets when they saw him. To to the point that they started, some started to believe that he was a sort of second coming of Elijah or Jeremiah. That that he was a, a reincarnated John the Baptist who had just recently been executed. So those are some of the opinions floating around about Jesus. Other people had more negative views on who he was. The disciples chose not to mention those Opinions, but some people thought that Jesus was a blasphemer, others accused him of being a maniac, a servant of the devil. Jesus was aware of those opinions too. He was so well known throughout that whole region of Galilee, where, where he spent most of his life, that that wherever he went in Galilee, he drew a crowd. But notice something about Matthew 16. He's not in Galilee here. He's not on his home turf. He's outside in Caesarea Philippi. It seems that Jesus may have wanted some solitude to be alone with his disciples. And now that he's alone with them, he asked them this second, more, more personal question. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? who do you say I am? It's as if he he first reminded them of of all those clamoring voices, all those opinions, all those people arguing over their own views about Jesus, only to then zero in and tell them, look, now, now you're here alone with me. All those voices are gone. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? You see, he asks for their personal take because that's the one that matters most for them and he asks us this question now too. Now, who do your parents say that Jesus is? Who do the elders of New Hope Fellowship say that Jesus is? Who were you brought up to believe Jesus is? Who do Christians say Jesus is? No, it's none of those questions. It's who do you, and we should, each of us in this room, take this personally as if Christ were asking us personally because he is asking you as an individual, who do you say that Jesus is? In this instance, Simon Peter decides to answer. Maybe some of you are holding back. You, you want to answer. You want to shout an answer to who Jesus is. Maybe some of you are hoping I don't start calling out names and asking But Simon Peter, he never shied away from an opportunity to speak his mind. If you know anything about Simon Peter, he spoke quickly, often. And sometimes it was for his benefit. Sometimes it got him to a lot of trouble. If you read down Matthew 16, you'll see some of the trouble that Simon Peter ran into because he was quick to speak. In any case, here, he speaks truth. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice how he starts there. You are the Christ, not just your Christ. Oh, your Christ. No, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Did you know that? If you didn't know that, you know now. Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. That's not how he filled out forms, right? Christ, comma Jesus. Christ means the Anointed One. It means the Messiah the chosen one, sent by God to rescue his people. Now, unless you were raised in a faithful, practicing Jewish household, the the weight of that is likely lost on you, as it is on me. Because those of us who grew up in in Gentile families, non-Jewish homes, we we need to work to, to, to put ourselves in the shoes of those early Jewish disciples like Simon Peter. When they came face to face with this carpenter from from Galilee, they had to come to terms with with the, the, the possibility that this might just be, might just be the one whom they'd been waiting for for so, so long. That he might just be the one whom their parents and grandparents and grandparents told them of. That he might just be the one whom God had promised. And and, and that promise had, had served as the only hope for their people. Through generations and generations, try to put yourself into Simon Peter's Choose to think I'm living with the man who might just be the one who is our only hope, the one whose name is the name that we've been holding on to, Messiah. We've been holding on to this name through generations of exile and occupation and humiliation and all kinds of suffering. It might just be him. So, So try to imagine the questions, the doubts on the one hand but also the the hopeful excitement in the hearts of men like Simon who who met Jesus, who who saw his miracles, who heard his words, and, and little by little were coming to believe that he was the anointed Messiah of God. And he happened to live in Galilee. And he happened to have called them. And now they happen to be living with him watching him and hearing him, wondering, is he the one? If you didn't grow up Jewish, you probably don't have categories for all that. At least you didn't grow up necessarily with categories for all that. But these, these men did, and, and perhaps and, and those women who traveled with Christ also had those categories in, in mind. And some of our Jewish friends and neighbors do too. So, here stood this man claiming to be the fulfillment of all those prophecies who would bring rescue to his people. And Simon Peter, he spends months and months with Jesus and comes to this conclusion, you are the Christ. Do you know that every time we say the name Jesus Christ, we are are stating a theological truth? Profound weight. Because every time we say the name Jesus Christ, we, do you know what Jesus means? We learn in Matthew, when Joseph is visited by an angel, he and Mary are told to name their baby Jesus because he's a savior. And Jesus means that God saves, God saves. And Christ, of course, means the anointed Messiah through whom God saves. So every time we sing or say the name of Jesus, we are saying, God saves, and here's the one through whom he saves. God saves, and here's the one he chose to rescue the world through. Peter also says, Simon Peter also says, you're the son. You're the son. Once again, notice that article He's not just a son of God. As the creed puts it, he's God's only son. That is, he's the only eternal son. When he asserted this, by the way, and Jesus often would say that he was the son of God. He'd do it this way. He'd refer to God as my father. My father, often. And when he did this, religious people were outraged with him because they knew what he meant. They knew what he was getting at when he calls God the Father, his personal father. He's calling himself God. And that's what Simon Peter is confessing here too when he says you're the son of God. He's saying you are God. Look at John 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And why were they going to stone him? Why? Look at verse 33. It was for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. If you remember last week when we were looking at Acts chapter 14, we saw what happened when people uh, called Paul and Barnabas gods and tried to worship them, right? Do you remember what they did? They objected strongly and they said, no, 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 we are men just like you. But Jesus doesn't do this. When someone said, You are making yourself God, he accepts that. When Peter says, You are the Son of God, he he affirms that. In fact, look at John chapter 20, verse 27 and 28. This is after Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. It says, he, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and, and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side where all the scars, the wounds were. And then he says, do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus at no point says, whoa, 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 you're getting ahead of yourself here. I'm a man like you. no. No is blessed are you because you've seen and you believe and by the way that's the that's the third title that the creed uses to talk about jesus he is the christ he is the son and he is lord just like thomas called him lord now let me tell you something interesting about this scene that we're looking at here in matthew 16 Um, the district where they're at caesarea philippi it wasn't always called caesarea philippi A ruler by the name of Herod Philip actually named it that. And he did it partially to name it after himself. His name is Philip. He says, we're going to call this area Philippi to honor himself. But he also calls it Caesarea Philippi in an effort to honor the emperor, Caesar Augustus. You see, he's honoring himself with half the name of the town, but he's also putting a little in there to, to ingratiate himself to the emperor. Philip's father some years before, had actually built a temple in that very district in honor of Caesar Augustus to honor and and to celebrate and even worship the name of the emperor. So, So this place, it was built, it was named, it was set apart to give praise to the emperor, to celebrate his lordship. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would choose this place to say, who do you say that I am? He's in the shadow of that temple, constructed to honor Caesar as Lord, and he asserts his own lordship, his supreme rule, not not just rule over the Roman Empire, which at this point extended from, from, from probably from India all the way to England, no, but to assert his lordship over the whole world. Read what Abraham Kuyper famously wrote. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. Mine. You can't find a corner of this earth, a corner of the universe, or a corner of our existence over which Jesus does not rightfully lay claim and say, this is mine. I am Lord over you. I am Lord over every place you've been, everywhere you will go, and I am Lord over the furthest corners of the universe that you'll never even see with your eyes. He is Lord. In fact, before the Apostles' Creed was written, early Christians who, who were being pressured under the Roman Empire to declare that Caesar is Lord, and this is what happened often in in, in the Roman Empire, they were were told to bow down. They were told to to, uh, declare ultimate allegiance to Caesar, the emperor, as Lord. But Christians, many of them, refused to do that, and instead what they did was they stated what was perhaps the, the earliest Christian creed, a simple one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and many of them paid with their lives for those words. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He reveals it to us here. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is our Lord. But how do we know that? That's the second question we got to ask. How do we know? How do you know? Some of you might say, well, the Bible tells me so. It's true. The whole New Testament, in fact, makes that claim and defends that claim of who Jesus is. But many who have read the Bible don't necessarily believe it, right? Perhaps some of us here. Many people in Jesus' day, they saw him up close and didn't believe that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God and our Lord. Many people saw him heal diseases and disabilities from paralysis to blindness and they saw him free people from, from bondage to evil spirits. They saw him raise the dead even. They saw him teach in ways that they had never heard anyone teach. They heard the parables that he spoke and the way that those parables would, would, would expose the, the, the motives and the desires of people's hearts. His insight was unmatched. Everyone agreed on that. His understanding of human nature was uncanny. And people saw that. And they also saw him interact with powerful figures who hoped to discredit him, to destroy him. And he would engage with these people in such a way that without defensiveness, without fear... He'd interact with them in a way that wisely exposed their their motives, in ways that called them to admit their evil and and even repent, and in ways that actually warned others to not be led astray by those evil, false leaders. He astounded everyone. And then he astounded people by the way that he would interact with the most and even draw to himself the, the weakest poorest, the most marginalized people felt safe with him. They felt attracted to him. They wanted to be with him. No one had ever been like this. No one like this had ever walked on the face of this earth. But many still wouldn't believe what he said about himself and his own identity. So, how does Simon know who Jesus is? How how do we know who Jesus is? Verse 17 tells us And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. That means you didn't just figure this out. It's not because you're smart or clever, you were able to pick up on the clues, or you're more insightful than other people are. No, no, no. God revealed it to you. And God must always reveal the identity of Jesus to us if we're going to know who he really is. He does this in different ways. He does this through, he reveals who Jesus is through the pages of Scripture. Where Matthew, for instance, tells us in Matthew 17, it's just just a, a chapter later, that God himself spoke from heaven saying, this, Jesus, is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God reveals to us who Jesus is. He reveals it through the words of people like Matthew and Simon, these firsthand witnesses who lived and walked with Jesus. He reveals it through the words of the apostle Paul, who, who, by the way, didn't want to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The Apostle Paul kicked against the goads. He he kicked against all the evidence, rejected it for years, for so long until Jesus finally convinced them of who he was. God reveals Jesus' identity to us through the the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the scriptures. And this is good news, more good news for, for Jews and Gentiles. If you have a Bible... Or even if you're just sitting here under the hearing of my voice, you have been granted the privilege of coming close to hear the words of Jesus. You've been granted the privilege to, to hear about the works of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is being revealed to you right now. What will you do with what you're hearing? He's revealing Himself. What do you do? What will you do with what he's revealing to you? He's calling you to believe in him or to believe in him again to keep believing in him what will you do? His name is the name the only name by which we must be saved he's calling you to believe in him the same way that he called Simon and the other 11 plus disciples so what will we do? Will we take him at his word? Will we believe and accept all the implications that come with knowing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God and our Lord? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, how did God reveal it to you? Think about it. How did he reveal it to you? Was it as you read the Bible and prayed? Was it through the preaching of his word? Was it through your family or others in your community? Was it all of the above, maybe? Was it gradual, almost unnoticed? Or was it in a moment, a dramatic moment that you can still remember? Whatever it was, know this, God by his spirit opened your eyes to see what he was clearly showing you. To see what sin was hiding from you. What the world was distracting you from. The Holy Spirit got your attention and opened up your eyes so you could see. And if you have believed, then God has more to show you too. He has more to teach you about the Son. It simply starts with saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Lord. And then from there, we keep learning more and more and more of who he is. If you look at the rest of Matthew 16, which we don't have time to, you see that Simon knew already who Jesus was, but there was a lot about Jesus he didn't know. And to keep learning. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple isn't just someone who believes in Jesus. The disciple is someone who continually is taught about Jesus, continues to learn more who he is and what it looks like to follow him. Disciple is one of the most common words in the New Testament for Jesus' people, people who would keep learning about the identity and the ways of Christ, who would keep learning to to worship him, keep learning to trust him, keep learning to submit to him as Lord. If you've already believed in Christ, then this is what he's calling you to. But here's the last question as we end. Why does it all matter? Why does it matter who Jesus is? I'll start by telling you that nothing matters more For one, he is the Christ, the chosen Messiah who is promised and who rescues his people from the curse of sin. He is the only name by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other salvation outside of him. He's the one who rescues people from the curse of sin, the sin that, that brought death into the world, the sin that, that guarantees God's wrath for us. That'll separate us from God forever in hell eternally. But Christ rescues from all of that by dying, by experiencing God's wrath on himself on behalf of humanity, he rescues. But to receive that rescue, you must know and believe who he is. That's why it matters. Here's another reason it matters. We saw a few weeks ago that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, quote from John 1 12, receives the right to be called children of God. The right to be, He's the only eternal Son of God who is always loved by the Father. But he invites us into that love. He invites us into that relationship between the Son and the Father to experience it, to be fully known, accepted, and approved of by God, the Father and the Son, forever. That is available for all who know Jesus and believe that he is the Christ, the Son, and our Lord. That's what's at stake for us. That's why it matters. Because that that sonship, that relationship in which we experience eternal communion with the God who made us, For those who believe in the Son. And here's the last reason it matters for us to get a a clear sight of who Jesus is. Here's another reason why we can't be blurry or ambivalent about the identity of Jesus. It's because some of us might have a, a partial take on who he is, and that can be dangerous. Here's what I mean. Some of us perhaps see him as the Christ, the Savior, but we don't really see him as Lord. Not really. Not always. That is, practically speaking, we 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 might look at him as someone who has saved us in the past. But for the here and now, right now, what role does he play in my life? Well, perhaps he doesn't rule over me with authority. Maybe I see him more, maybe you see him more as a a consultant, an advisor, a counselor who's on call for when times get difficult. You can dial him up. But none none of that is who he claims to be. He says he's Lord. The creed calls him our Lord. You see, our, it's personal It means he's not just the Lord of of the universe, he's my Lord. I have submitted to him as Lord. I entrust my life to him as Lord. And if he is your Lord, then nothing else can be. If he is your Lord, then no one else can be, including yourself. How are we functionally prone to live as if we are our own lords rather than Christ? How are you prone to live as if he is not Lord? He lays claim over the whole universe, but but in this area of your life, somehow he's hands off? Maybe we live as if he's not Lord when we make decisions without even considering what would honor him. We set goals and Embrace lifestyles without ever really considering, what does the Lord say about this? Maybe it's by going through life without even acknowledging that he's there. Living lives as a family, as if, as if we're a self-contained unit. Everything we need is right here in this household, and, and we can make this work, and we can get by, and we can save up, and we can, we can enjoy life together as if Jesus isn't even there except when we get together, perhaps, to to worship him on a Sunday. Maybe we ignore his lordship by downplaying the need for worship, the need to to center our lives on him as individuals and as a family. Listen to the words of J.I. Packer. He says, If Jesus is God the Son, our co-creator, and is also Christ, the anointed Savior King, now risen from death and reigning, sitting, as the creed puts it, on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, in that place of authority and power, then he has a right to rule us. And we have no right to resist his claim. Palestine, well, as he invaded Space and time. I love the the way that, that, as he invaded space and time in Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago, so he invades our personal space and time today. He's invading our personal space right now with the same purpose of love that first brought him to earth. Come and follow me was his word then, and it still is. Come and follow me. Will we follow him? If you have drifted from him, perhaps ignored him for a season or, or have felt yourself distracted from him, will, will, will you humbly return to him? Will you confess that to him? Because he's meek and gentle. Make no mistake, he will receive you with open arms. He, he delights to show mercy and to teach you more of who he is. He's not going to hold a grudge. If you're still wondering whether he really is who he claims to be, let me encourage you to wrestle with those doubts. Wrestle with those questions. Ask yourself, who is he to me? Who is Jesus to me right now? I'd suggest you only have a couple of options. Is he a liar? Do you think he's a liar? Who made claims he knew weren't true? Do you think he was a lunatic? He was delusional, man, and he just thought he was God. Or is he a legend? He's just fiction? Just fiction. By the way, his disciples provide us with first-hand testimony about him, and we have more confirmable reasons to believe that he lived and died and rose again than we have data to prove that Alexander the Great really lived or that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. or or a thousand other historical facts that we accept without question. So is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he a legend? Or is he Lord? Is he Lord? And if he is Lord, then he deserves your worship. He deserves our devotion. He deserves everything from us. And, And what he has for us is everything that we were made for. He will give you everything that you were made to experience and know and enjoy. Millions of people have found peace and eternal hope in that reality. So the question is, do you believe? And if you do, as I know so many of you do, then blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. We get to affirm that truth in a moment when we come to the Lord's table. We get a chance to to declare who Jesus is again. We get a chance to receive grace from him. We get a chance to affirm our belief in him. And we get to worship him too. As we eat and drink. The signs of his body and blood. So let's pray. Father. Without the illumination of your Holy Spirit at work in us, then then the name of Jesus is just going to be a name to us. It's going to be a a, a religious password or, or maybe a curse word. Lord, we need you to open our eyes to see him for who he is, not just the name, but the name above all names. So open our eyes, Lord, to see him as the Christ, your only son, our Lord, the one we need and the one we ache for.